Good evening. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1 tonight, so you can go ahead and turn there. Um, so my name is Nate Morris, and uh, I'm from Calvary Chapel Belmar, which is up in Lakewood, um, just on the west side of Denver. And, you know, I was actually here, I think it was about 12 years ago. I used to play in a Christian punk rock band, and we played for the youth group here. And uh, back when Eric was the youth pastor, um, so me and Eric go back quite a ways. We played for the youth group a few times in the band that I was in, and um, it's just uh, cool to see the way that God has taken us in parallel directions. So um, he's, a good, he's a good friend of mine. We also, um, our worship leader at our church is, uh, is his brother-in-law. And so <laughs> it's, like, it's like we got like this whole family thing going on with you guys. So I'm very excited to be with you guys tonight. I'm blessed to be able to share the word. Um, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1, but let's come before the Lord in a word of prayer before we get into our study. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you that you loved us enough, Lord, that in the midst of all of our sin, our craziness, the things that we do day in and day out, Lord, that you, you are so passionate about us that you would choose death for our life. Lord, I thank you that you call us your inheritance. That's how passionate you are about us, Lord. As we study your word tonight, would you speak to us? Would you draw us to yourself by your word? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in Ephesians chapter 1, in verse 15 starting. And we're going to talk a little bit about Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, and really by extension, Paul's prayer for us, and what that means in our life. And so we look in Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15. He says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And so he says, After I heard of your faith and your love, I have not ceased to give thanks for you. And so those things, their faith and their love, were evidence that their faith was real, that their faith was something that they had clung to in reality. It wasn't just going through the motions. It was real to them. It was personal. And so that was the evidence. And so because of that evidence, Paul is thanking the Lord for them. He's thankful for their continued faithfulness. And then he says, making mention of you in my prayers. Now, Paul the apostle was a man of prayer. He valued prayer deeply. Almost all of Paul's letters, when you look through them, mention how much he's praying for each church or for specific people. And if you think about that, man, that's a lot of churches to pray for. That's a lot of people to pray for. Paul must have been on his knees constantly praying. But see, Paul knew the importance of prayer and that prayer works. See, often we can feel like we've got so much going on in our lives that maybe we're just too busy to pray. I know that for the past couple weeks, I've had just craziness going on in my house. We had our, our basement got flooded, and we had to rip up the carpet and tear off the drywall, and then I discovered mold in the bathroom, so I was putting on the full white suit, you know, with the little mask thing, tearing walls out in the bathroom, spraying this mold stuff on to kill it all. And in the midst of that, it's just been craziness. And, and then on top of that, we're doing VBS at our church next week, and we've got all this stuff going on. And you can feel in, in the midst of times like that that, man, I've got too much going on to pray. I'm too busy to pray. But the reality is that I'm too busy not to pray. I may have everything going on in the world, but unless I can spend that time on my knees before the Father, then I'm missing it, and I'm going to suffer through the rest of my day and my week because of that. See, I've got way too much going on in my life to not be in prayer. 
In fact, just preparing for this study and thinking through this, it was like, man, I, I need to be on my knees more than I am even. As, as the things, are, our craziness is going on, I need to be coming before the Lord. But see, often that's the first thing that we skip. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm too busy to have my coffee this morning. Coffee is very important in my life. I don't go a morning without coffee. Um, or maybe eating, you know, dinner. You might skip breakfast. You might be one of those people. And you may skip lunch because you didn't have time to grab it. But by the time dinner comes around, I guarantee you, you are eating something. That's just the way that it goes. See, we get excited about eating. We, we get hungry and we want to eat and we plan it and we pay for it and we sacrifice time to prepare food or um, we sacrifice money to buy food. Imagine if you had to pay to pray. Think about that for a second. We pay to eat. Would you pay to pray? I mean, I hope that your answer would be yes, but my first thought is like, I don't want to have to pay to pray. Why should I pay money to pray? But see, that's the, the value of prayer is so much more than food. How often do you go two or three days without eating? Probably not very often. Maybe if you're fasting. But you're not likely to just skip, prayer because you're, skip food because you're too busy for two or three days. Yet, how often might you go two or three days without really coming before the Lord in prayer? And I'm not talking about praying for your meal, but like actually coming before the Lord and saying, man, this is what's going on in my life. This is what's going on in these people's life. And really seeking the Lord. It's pretty eye-opening when you think about that contrast because we would never go two or three days without food unless it was on purpose. But it's so easy to go several days without prayer. Prayer is more important than food. It's vital. And see, often we kind of think, well, I've got too much going on this morning. It's too busy in my life. I need, I need to carve out time to pray, and I just don't have time for it today. But prayer is the most important thing that we should be doing. We should be starting our day with it, ending our day with it, in the middle of our day, praying without ceasing, as Paul says. When you look through the scriptures, you'll find kings and prophets and ordinary people like you and I see amazing things happen because of prayer. One prayer stopped the sun for an entire day. One prayer rained fire down from heaven. One prayer gained a man 15 years to his life. And one prayer even saved a whole city. And that's just the beginning of what prayer accomplishes when we look through the scriptures. Prayer works. And so maybe we should develop like an iPhone app that zaps you every hour or something and says, Hey, pray. Hey, pray. Hey, pray. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16 says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And see, we can come before God's throne boldly anytime we want to. I don't know about you, but I don't have President Obama on speed dial. Anybody? You have his phone number in your phone? I, I can't call him up any time I want to. I know because I tried. Um, I'm not, I'm not even kidding you. There's a phone, there's a, there's a, if you go on the White House website, which I, go, go look for this. At least it was there last time I tried this. It says, would you like to speak to the president? And it has a phone number. And I was like, okay, I'm going to try it. <laughs> so I called the phone number and somebody answered and said, White House. That's literally all he said. I was like, really? Okay. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'd like to speak to President Obama. And the guy sat there for a second and was silent. And he said, really? And I was like, well, yeah, I mean, it says if you have any questions for the president, you can call this number. And he said, well, you can't actually talk to the president. <laughs> That's not the way that it works. 
If you want to, if you want to give me your question, I can put it to him, to the, the the people that answer his questions, and maybe he'll they'll get back to you. But see, that's the way that it works when we talk about human people. But when it comes to God, the King of the universe, we have direct access to His throne room. And how silly is it that we don't spend time there? I don't know about you, but I have a few things I would like to say to President Obama, and there's a few questions I would like to get answered. <laughs> But when I come before the Lord, the one who rules over everything and who allowed President Obama to be in his place and directs the kings of the nations, so often it's something that is easy to skip and we lose the value of it. And see, God cares about us and he wants to hear what's going on in our lives and he wants us to bring our hurts and our joys before him in prayer. He also wants us to be praying for others. See, Paul was a man of prayer, but not really as much for himself as for other people. He prayed for other people a lot. In fact, I would guess that Paul spent more time praying for other people than he did praying for himself. That's how much time he spent in prayer. He was an intercessor. And see, we're called to pray not only for ourselves, but for others, perhaps even more importantly. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul is speaking, and he says, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And so he's saying, being praying always with all prayer and all supplication for all the saints. We should be praying for other people. And see, often we can be selfish in prayer, can't we? It's like, Lord, I really need you to, to work on this thing in my life, or I need you to give me this provision, or I need you to take care of this thing. But we can forget about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, I've got a challenge for you for this week. As you go through the rest of your week, take one time every day and take two minutes dedicated just to praying for other people. If you take that two minutes per day and start praying for other people, you'll be amazed at how your mind starts really thinking about what is going on in people's lives. And you're going to spend way more than two minutes, I guarantee it. But sometimes it's hard to think, well, I want to pray for half an hour for other people. That, that can be, seem like a challenge, but if you just start with two minutes, uh, if you really try to do this, I guarantee you, you won't be able to do it in just two minutes. You're going to just keep going and keep going and keep going. I was even doing it on the drive down here, just kind of thinking about this, this thing, and it was like, man, oh, this person's got this going on in their life, or this person's got that going on in their life, and just praying for them. And see, God will meet you in that time. And as you start to pray for other people, your prayer life will be changed because your personal issues start to fade away. And you start seeing people through God's eyes, and you're humbly serving other people through prayer. See, I believe that God loves it when we pray for other people. He loves it when we come before him and pray for someone that we care about. So when you think about someone, pray for them. Somebody pops into your head, you're like, oh, I'm going to pray for that person. It doesn't have to be anything crazy, just, God, thank you for this person. Please bless them today. Use them and grow them in their walk with you, and just leave it at that. But that's a blessing for you and a blessing for that person as well. And then if you know specifics, if you know something going on in their life, pray for that as well. And then let people know that you've been praying for them. You don't know what a blessing it is how often when I hear somebody saying, oh, I've been praying for you, it's like, oh, thank you. That's awesome that somebody's praying for me. See, knowing that somebody has been praying for you has a profound effect on your life. It lifts, lifts your spirits. It makes you feel like you're not alone in what you're going through. And so as you're praying for somebody, let them know. Maybe she's a text message and saying, hey, praying for you today. Hope you're having a good day. Just as simple as that. God can really use that in amazing ways. And then 
you don't have to stop there. Following Paul the Apostle's example here, not only letting people know that we've been praying for them, but letting them know what we're praying for them. See, Paul often told people exactly what he was praying for them for. Now, this is something that we often overlook. But as Paul did this, it was an encouragement to them and by extension to us as well. Look with me at verse 17 through 19 here. He says, in verse 16, just for context, he says, Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. Now, when you read that and you think, man, Paul is praying that for me, which he was because we're recipients of this letter. Paul is praying that for me. That's an amazing thing to think about the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe. I mean, what if you just prayed somebody, texted somebody something like that? I'm praying this for you today. And they got that on their phone. Man, that's such a blessing to receive that. And then, you know, Paul let them know what he was praying for them for. And what this does is it does a couple things for people. One, it encourages them to pray for the same things for themselves. When he prays that you would experience the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe, I look at that and I'm like, man, I need more power of God in my life. I want to pray for that as well. And it encourages them to connect onto that truth and pray for that as well. And then it also causes them to see how God may have already been answering certain prayers in their lives. Certain things that they've been going through. It's like, man, I saw God do that just the other day. The thing that you're praying for, God really spoke to me in that exact way today. How awesome is that? And so let's look here at what it was that Paul prayed for the Ephesians. Above all else, when you look through this, it, it's that Paul is praying that they would understand that they would understand. It's not for, for strength or for patience or for finances or anything else that he's praying for them. It's that they would understand what they've already been given in Jesus Christ. Essentially, he's praying that they would understand the wealth of spiritual blessings they've received. Because as they begin to understand that, that wealth of blessing that God has poured upon them through his son, it changes the way that they live. See, these same prayers that Paul is praying for the Ephesian church apply to us today because this, this letter was written to be a circular, and so that means that it would go to different churches, to different people, and so by extension, it was written to us. And so he's praying these same things for us. Look with me in verse 17. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And see, Paul's prayer for you is that you would know Jesus more and more. And that through that knowledge of Jesus, we would understand what God's blessings, his spiritual blessings are that he's given us. Now, I, I meet with people to counsel them fairly often. Um, and when I do, the interesting thing that I've found is that any situation that I come across, whatever somebody may be going through, whatever they may come to me for counsel for, whether it's marital issues, financial stress, um, fear, anxiety, depression, addiction, pornography, loneliness, bitterness. I mean, anything and everything that you can think of that somebody would possibly want counsel on. Whenever it comes to me, these things all, these all have one thing in common. They all stem from the root of not having a proper heart understanding of who Jesus is and what he's given us. 
And so, essentially, every issue that we can come up with under the sun has the same solution. Jesus. Knowing Jesus. Trusting Jesus. Now, if you were to come to me for counsel, don't worry, I'm not going to be just say, hey, you just need more Jesus and kick you out the door. <laughs> of course, we're going to dig into the issues and find out what it is and where your relationship with Christ is broken or where somebody else's relationship with Christ is broken and seek healing in that. But the, the root issue is a misunderstanding of who God is and how he thinks about us. And see, often we know in our head what the answer is, to whatever it is that we may be facing. But the problem comes in that we need that information to make the trip 12 inches down from our head to right here in our heart. Most of us, if you've been a believer for a long time and you've read through the scriptures, you probably know many of the answers that you go looking for when it comes to things that are going on in your life. But that knowledge that's up here has to make the trip down to your heart. Look with me there in verse 18. He says that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Now, the literal translation of that there is um, not the, your understanding so much as literally it, it should say that the eyes of your heart would be opened. That's his prayer, that the eyes of your heart would be open. Now, I understand. I mean, I, I love that. I, I, I think understanding is a good translation, but when you word it like that, that the eyes of your heart would be opened, it has so much more depth of meaning to it. This is the verse where they came up with that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart. Do you remember that song, anybody? See, too often what happens is we get our head full of knowledge about God, but never open the eyes of our heart to receive the fullness of who he is. We can fill our heads with all kinds of facts about Jesus, all kinds of facts about the Bible, and never receive the fullness of what it is that he's offering us. Now, I used to have this, um, it was a 1992 Toyota 4Runner, and this just, I, this was like six months ago, and um, I had this car, and I'm a hobbyist mechanic, which means that I don't really know what I'm doing, but I think I do, um, <laughs> and so I, I would fix things that would go wrong on my car, because it was cheaper than taking it to somebody else, and it's like, well, this car is not worth very much, it's a 92 4Runner, so if I mess something up, then oh well. So... I had a couple times had to change out the thermostat on that car because it would start overheating and the thermostat would go bad. This, this happened to me three different times. The third time that it happened, I was so busy that I couldn't get, make time to do it. I couldn't find time to do it. I'm like, it'll be all right. I'll just drive it. And I remember driving to church one Sunday morning and I, I hadn't realized that this was going on and I'm driving down the road and suddenly my engine starts pouring out steam like clouds of steam, and I'm driving down the road, and I pull up to the stoplight, and there's people sitting next to me in their cars, and I'm just trying to pretend like nothing's going on, <laughs> just looking forward like they don't see me. Nothing's, nothing to look at here. Everything's okay, and steam's pouring out of the engine. Then I pull up to church, and there's people there in front of me already beforehand, and they're looking at me like, oh, what's going on with your car? Steam's pouring out of the engine, and and I'm like, okay, it's going to be all right. It's going to be okay. So I finally get my car home later that day, and I, I go and I fix the thermostat. But what had happened is because I waited so long to do it, I didn't take the, the knowledge that I had and apply it to the, the application that needed to be done, I let my car get overheated to the point that it blew my head gasket, which was a much, 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 much bigger deal than a simple thermostat change. The thermostat part is $6. You can change it in about half an hour. A head gasket 
is not too expensive, but the labor on it's about $2,000. My car was worth about $2,500. So do I repair it or not? Chose not to. And see, what happened is because of my essentially not applying the knowledge that I had, I knew how to change a thermostat. I just needed to do it. Because I didn't apply that knowledge and put it into action, my car ended up dying and I ended up having to sell it for scrap. If I had just taken what I knew in my head and applied it in reality, I would have fixed it. Now, it's, it's the same way with our relationship with Jesus Christ. You can know all kinds of things about Jesus. You can know the ins and outs of systematic theology. You can know all this different stuff. You can know what Jesus would do in a situation. Remember that whole thing, what would Jesus do? You can know what Jesus would do. But if you don't plug into Jesus in relationship, it doesn't help. That knowledge is sitting in your head, doesn't do anything until it makes the trip to your heart, to your will, to your actions, moving forward in relationship with God. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, are you satisfied being filled with good information about God, or do you long to burst into his manifest presence? I love that quote. Are you satisfied being filled with good information about God, or do you long to burst into his manifest presence? Man, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be satisfied with good information about God. I want to be sitting in the presence of God. I want to burst into his manifest presence. I want the power of God at work in my life. I want it to be tangible in my day. I want to feel him at work in my life, working through me and in my life. And see, information about God is good, but unless you can open the eyes of your heart to receive that information and process it and allow that to make the trip down from your head to your heart, it really doesn't help you at all. And see, I think this is something that's a struggle for many Christians. Um, we tend to collect all kinds of facts and information about our faith, and we can get really head smart when it comes to Christianity. We can be apologetics experts, and you could debate with the most knowledgeable atheists and really put them to shame. You could be an eschatology expert and just know all kinds of things about the end times and know all the different theologies behind it and know the ins and outs of prophecy, and you could have all the right answers to all of the hard questions, but all too often the head knowledge that we accumulate, the facts about Jesus, don't make the trip to our hearts to knowing Jesus personally, intimately, relationally. And the result of that is that we have a hard time believing God. We have a hard time believing, believing that he loves us. We have a hard time believing that he will provide for us. We have a hard time believing he'll forgive us. We have a hard time believing that he really will work all things together for good to those who love him. We have a hard time believing that he can heal us from the wounds that we carry in our heart. And see, when we don't believe those things any longer, your faith becomes very difficult to live out because you're just going through the motions and you walk in fear, burdened and overwhelmed. See, this is why Paul prayed for them to have the eyes of their heart opened. Practical Christian living, so living like a Christian, is the natural outflow of a heart relationship with Jesus. You can't have one without the other. If you're trying to follow Jesus without that relationship core, you're not going to be able to do it. Or in other words, knowing facts about Jesus is not the same thing as knowing Jesus. 
Knowing that all the scriptures that speak about a certain aspect of Jesus' life is not the same thing as having a relationship with him. See, knowing about Jesus is good, but knowing him is better, infinitely better. And the cool thing is that as believers, as Christians, we are not relegated to just knowing facts about Jesus. We can know him experientially in an intimate relationship with Christ. Now, Jesus, in rebuking some of the religious Pharisees, said this in John chapter 5, verse 39. He said, You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. He's saying, Hey, the Bible is good. Scriptures are good. That's a good thing. You're searching for them, but you're thinking that you're going to find life in knowing all the answers and having all the right doctrines down pat and having the right facts. Where life is not in that, it's in me. And you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. And see, eternal life, real life, isn't found in facts and knowledge about Jesus, but in relationship with Jesus. In fact, the Bible says that eternal life itself is knowing God. In John chapter 17, verse 3, it says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so when you're saved, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that 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 salvation, that life that you're given, is relationship with God. That relationship is restored and you are given eternal life. Now, C.S. Lewis said this. He said, God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself. Because it is not there, there is no such thing. See, God is our peace. He himself is our happiness. He himself is our hope. He himself is our joy. And when we open the eyes of our understanding to understand that our hope is in Jesus— we can begin to understand the other spiritual blessings that come along with that. And Paul begins to detail some of these again here in verse 18. And there's three specific things that he details here that I'm going to look at that they would understand as they have their eyes of their heart opened. And the first one, he says, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, the hope of the calling of God. Paul's prayer for you is that you would understand in your heart what the hope of his calling is. See, we have a glorious future of resurrection, eternal life, freedom from sin, perfected justification, and glorious elevation above even the angels themselves. That's the hope that we look forward to as believers. I had the, the privilege of doing a hospital visit this morning for a man who is, um, he's probably passing either today or tomorrow, and uh, he was a believer, which is awesome. Um, but I got to go sit with him and sit with his, his wife there in the hospital room, and we were just talking about what our hope is. And that he's, he's not, he's not, this is not the end. This is the end of the beginning. This is a transition for him. And man, he's going to just have his mind blown when he gets there. And in a way, I'm jealous a little bit. I'm not saying that I'm suicidal and I want to go kill myself so I can go to heaven. But I'm jealous of the fact that he's going to be there experiencing the hope of our calling in a way that, that I can't hear. But we can grasp hold of it by faith. And then the second thing that he says there in verse 18 is, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? Now, I want you not to skim over this because it says, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? What this verse is saying is that you are God's inheritance. 
Now, just as heaven and perfect relationship with God is our inheritance, God's inheritance is you. You are his inheritance. God values you so much that you're an inheritance to him. That's crazy when you think about it. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 9 says, For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the place of his inheritance. See, he views us as his inheritance, what he's receiving, ultimately through the death of his son. See, Jesus died not only for you, but for you, for him, to redeem yourself to him. He loves you that much. Psalm 149 verse 4 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with salvation. See, God takes pleasure in you. He loves you. You are his inheritance. Jesus loves you more than you think he does. I bet you there's some people here tonight that need to hear that. Jesus loves you more than you think he does. Beyond what you can even fathom. And see, when we let this knowledge make the trip from our head to our heart, it can change everything about the way that you live. Not walking in fear any longer, but having peace in God, understanding that if Jesus views me as his inheritance, he's going to do everything he can to take care of me and make sure that everything is, works out the way that it needs to work out in my life. Because I'm in his, his inheritance. And then the third one is in verse 19. He says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all." What is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe? That's the third thing that he wants us to grasp there. What is the exceeding greatness of God's power towards you who believe in him? See, God's power towards you is exceedingly great. It's not only great, it's exceedingly great. It's greater than you can think great. And see, we don't have any idea how, how big or great the power of God is that is on our side, that is for us. Charles Spurgeon said about this verse, he said, the very same power which raised Christ is waiting to raise the drunkard from his drunkenness, to raise the thief from his dishonesty, to raise the Pharisee from his self-righteousness, to raise the Sadducee from his unbelief. See, God's power is so great that he not only raised Jesus from the dead, but in doing that, he made every other power that claims to have power subject to Jesus. And that means that God's power subjected everything that exists. Everything is subject to him. That means all things are under Jesus' feet. And so the same power that put all things under Jesus' feet is available to you and I. That same power is at our disposal. That same power that subjected everything in creation is available to work mightily on our behalf. His power toward us is exceedingly great. That's why we can see, say what it says in Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? God's power is exceedingly great. 
But see, when we allow the eyes of our heart to be opened to understand the power of God toward us, and don't just have it up here in our head, yeah, God created the universe, so he's all-powerful, so yeah, he's got lots of power at his disposal, and it's just facts sitting up there. But when you allow those facts to make the trip from your head to your heart to where it actually works out in your life, man, it changes your outlook on things. God's power is exceedingly great in my marriage. God's power is exceedingly great in my finances. God's power is exceedingly great in my stress. God's power is exceedingly great in my anxiety. God's power is exceedingly great in my addiction, in my depression, in my pornography, in my loneliness, in my bitterness, anything and everything that you can think of. His power has subjected that under the feet of Jesus Christ. It stands under the feet of Jesus. And as such, God has given us exceedingly great power to face those things in faith and trust in him. See, God can work mightily in your marriage. God can work mightily in your finances. God can work mightily in your stress, your anxiety, your fear, depression, whatever it may be. And he wants to. He wants to work mightily in those areas of your life. But to be able to grasp that power to grasp the healing that he wants to bring to your heart, to grasp the healing that he wants to bring to your relationships, we have to be able to open the eyes of our heart and not just have those facts swimming around in our head. Allow them to make that trip 12 inches down to our will, where we trust in him. And so today, let's examine ourselves and see where we are. Where's your faith? Where's your trust? Are you in a spot where your Christianity, your relationship with God, is really more knowledge about God than it is knowing God? Do you feel the, the, the passion and life and power of Jesus upon you in your day-to-day -day life? Are you being fulfilled in your relationship with Jesus? Are you delighting in him? Or maybe are you in a place where you feel weary or fearful, ashamed or apathetic, overwhelmed, Maybe you feel disappointed with God because things didn't work out the way that you wanted them to. Or maybe you feel chained to sin. Something you just, you can't let it go. Whatever it may be. Pornography, addiction, whatever, whatever it may be. Anger. You can be chained to anger, to bitterness. Maybe there's somebody you have, are harboring unforgiveness toward in your heart. See, being in any of those situations is not God's will for you. He doesn't desire for you to live there. He wants to free you from those things. But I bet if that's you, in any of those cases, you've been struggling with doubting God. Doubting that his power is exceedingly great in your marriage. Doubting that his power is exceedingly great in your relationships. And if you're in that spot and you haven't been knowing God actively, relationally, but have been learning about God, it's time to, to make that change and not just settle for the head knowledge of God. You need that heart knowledge, that heart understanding. And so today is like your wake-up call, like your alarm to get up in the morning, right? Anybody use an alarm clock? Anybody? I use three alarms in the morning to get out of bed. I'm not even kidding. So I have this little nifty little Fitbit wristwatch thing that has a silent alarm, which is pretty nice. But the problem is, is that I have my silent alarm go off twice so that I don't wake my wife up, but the second time I'm like maybe slightly stirring, and then I have my phone alarm go off after that to actually get me out of bed, because I can't do it any other way. I end up sleeping through it. And see, this today is your wake-up call. Don't hit snooze again. 
Just like me with that car. If I would have just taken care of that car when I knew that it was starting to overheat, I'd still have a car today that would drive and it would be functioning perfectly. But because I ignored it, what's that? It's my, yeah. And, but because I ignored it, it blew up on me and now it no longer functions. And so don't wait. Don't, don't let it sit there. Don't, don't say, oh, I'll, I'll get to that tomorrow. Don't procrastinate on your relationship with the Lord. You know, sometimes I'm, I'm guilty of uh, the, the husband thing where my wife is talking to me, and I don't even realize that I'm doing this, but she'll be talking, and, and I'm I kind of like focusing on something else. Men, at least I am, I can't multitask. It doesn't work. I can't do it. So I'll be trying to do something, and my wife's trying to talk to me from the other room, and I do like this thing, and I'm looking at what I'm doing, and I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And after a while, she's like, are you listening to me? Uh-huh. No. <laughs> But I, every once in a while, I catch myself doing that, and then I feel really bad afterwards. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I wasn't paying attention to what you were saying. But see, sometimes we can do the same thing when it comes to God speaking to us through the Scriptures. You'd be like, uh-huh, yeah, I got that processed. It. It's sitting up there somewhere. Don't do that today. Don't do that today. Don't allow what Paul is saying here to pass you by. Check under the hood. Whatever that is. Place that thing before the Lord. Maybe you need to do some maintenance. Stop accumulating facts and start processing those information, the information that you have, and allow it to move in your heart and change your direction. John chapter 6, verse 35 says this. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger and he who believes in me shall never thirst. That's his word for you. Are you hungry? Come to Jesus. Are you thirsty? Come to Jesus. Not just coming to theology or doctrine. Those things are good. Those are important. Those are part of it. But coming to Jesus in relationship. Let's close with that. Lord, thank you so much that you don't desire just to have us learn about you, Lord, but that you would desire a relationship with us, a real-life, living, interactive, breathing relationship. And it's so—I'm guilty of this so many times, Lord, where it's our, our, my relationship with you becomes about learning and, and facts and, and processing things, and, and I forget to focus on the fact that I can come into the throne room of the King of the universe. Lord, may you change our hearts and open the eyes of our heart that we can understand the truth of what you're calling us to. That you desire for us to have life, eternal, abundant life, which is relationship with you, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray for those tonight that are battling with some of those things that I talked about earlier, Lord. They're battling with marital problems. They're battling depression or addiction or loneliness or bitterness. I pray right now, Lord, that you would speak to them and reveal to them that the solution is you. That those things are symptoms of not having a proper heart knowledge and understanding of you, Lord. And so would you speak to our hearts and open the eyes of our heart tonight. And Lord, I pray for anybody that's here who doesn't have a relationship with you. They've never put their trust in you to receive salvation. Maybe, the, maybe there's somebody who's here who's been in church their whole life and they've learned all about you, but they've never had a heart relationship with you, Lord. 
Would you speak to that person tonight? And maybe there's somebody here tonight who, who hasn't even been around church and they just thought about God as being some being out in outer space. They don't really understand. But Lord, would you speak to them your love and your passion over them tonight? And if either of those describe you, I want to just share with you briefly. God loves you. He views you as his inheritance. That's what we just read. That you are his inheritance in the saints. But there's a problem. The problem is what we call sin. See, you and I are all sinners. Every one of us is a sinner. And so if I'm calling you a sinner, it's not being judgmental. I, I am a sinner too. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, which means that sin is like a job. It earns you a paycheck. Man, you thought waiting tables was bad. Death, that's what you have earned. But see, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so God loved us so much that he looked at us and said, man, I'm not willing to let them accept the wages of their sin. I'm going to do the only thing that's possible. I'm going to come live and die in their place. And that's exactly what he did. Jesus came, lived, and never sinned once. He paid the penalty for our sin perfectly on the cross so that we could have not only forgiveness, not only heaven and redemption, but relationship with him. And if you'd like to receive that tonight, you'd like to put your trust in Jesus to receive that salvation, would you just stick your hand up in the air? And I want to pray with you this, this evening, if that's you. All right, if that's you, I see that hand. All right, if that's you, if you're one of those, just between you and the Lord, something like this. It's not saying a prayer that saves you. It's your faith put in Jesus. But when we say that a prayer like this, it helps us give legs to our faith. Would you just, between you and Jesus, say, Lord, I know, I know I'm a sinner. And I don't deserve your love. Thank you for loving me anyways. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I want to have relationship with you. I want to follow you. Would you wash me clean? Forgive me. I want to turn from my sin to you. In Jesus' name.